The NFX Podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating and review and by sharing with friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos by following us on Twitter at NFX and visiting NFX.com. And now, on to the show. So today on the NFX Podcast, we've got my friend Scott Commoners, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. Scott, so glad you're joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So look, not everybody who's listened to this knows who you are. So I want to explain why I'm having you on here. So I went to HBS years ago and I didn't know you while you were there because you're younger than I am, but you are teaching the marketplaces course at HBS and you're also teaching a doctoral course in market design. And you and I have had so much fun over the last few years talking and geeking out about different attributes and tactics around marketplaces and whatnot. And when I look at the landscape of people who are aggregating and thinking deeply about how digital marketplaces work, you are one of the preeminent people who are doing that now. And last few weeks ago, you and I were in Cambridge and we went on a nice long walk and we had so much fun talking. And I just thought, I've got to get you in front of founders. You are really the up and coming person who's aggregating and disseminating and analyzing the tactics, the information that founders need to know in order to be more successful with their marketplaces. And you're just a treasure trove at this point and you're only just beginning. And we're going to see you doing this for the next 40 years and it's going to be great fun. So glad to have you. Thanks so much. I don't know if I can live up to that intro, but let me just say it's 100% mutual, right? Like I have learned so much about marketplaces from you and and you've come and spoken to my students and stuff. And I tell them to read every NFX thing they can find because, you know, it's the center of the marketplace universe. Well, thank you. Yeah. And we're trying to be that. And you and I, I think, have a similar approach to collecting and trying to figure it out because it's just delightful and, and fun intellectually to figure this out. And then if you can help founders to do what they're doing, it's just going to make a big difference in the world and we'll all move forward faster. And that's the joy of it. So I want people to have a chance to learn from you directly today. And last time I came and spoke at your class, I brought my kids, my twin boys, and we got little blazers on them and little ties on them. And we had an absolute blast. So thank you for letting us do that. So let's dive in. So quickly, your Erdos number is three. Tell us about the Erdos number and what's going on there. So the Erdos number is sort of a historical mathematical amusement. So there was this mathematician, Erdos, who was so incredibly prolific that, you know, he basically spent his entire life just like flying around the world, collaborating with different mathematicians and writing papers. And he had so many different collaborators that they created like a sort of a, you know, a system. It was almost like a game. It's sort of like the Kevin Bacon number equivalent for math, where, you know, people kept track of how far they were in paper distance from Erdos. And so if you had co-authored with him, he was a zero, of course, right? You know, Erdish number of zero. He has no distance from himself. If you co-authored with him, you got a one. And if you co-authored with somebody who had co-authored with him, you got a two. And then if you co-authored with someone who's co-authored with someone who's co-authored with someone <laughs> and so forth. So I've co-authored with a couple of different people who co-authored with someone who co-authored with Erdish who have two. So I'm a three. The wacky thing actually is like one of the papers is a number theory paper written with uh, the professor who was my undergraduate uh, thesis advisor and now sort of like a you know very good friend and long-term collaborator. But another is with one of my economist co-authors who through like economist channels had co-authored with someone else who co-authored with Erdish. So like even like outside of field, outside of math, it's just like, you know, Kevin Bacon, but the mathematician's version to the extreme. Got it. So Erdish is this center academic figure and you are actually pretty close to him, even though he probably passed <laughs> before you even got going. I mean, it does show that you have really committed yourself to this academic track. You know, I think there are some people who might have decided to do academics for a while and then go into industry and get some equity and do some deals and then go back and that sort of thing. You are solidly on the academic track and in the world of publishing papers and you've become prolific actually. You've been publishing lots of papers and you're, how old are you? 34 as of recently. 
Wow, that's fantastic. How many papers have you published, do you think? Is it 10? Is it 5? Is it 50? So it's closer to like 80 or 85 or something. Unbelievable. 34 years old. Well done. Well done. So see, this is it. This is um, to the listeners of the NFX podcast. This is why we've got this guy on. He's uh, one of the bright lights. So there you go. So you're teaching this making markets class at HBS. Did you invent that? Yeah. Well, so I co-launched the course with Tom Eisenman, you know, who I know you know and have done work with in the past. He's been on the NFX podcast before, and he's got this great book out recently about entrepreneurship and failure and how to avoid it. Excellent book, incidentally. I'll second the recommendation. Excellent. But so he and I co-launched the class, and really it had been a project we'd been talking about co-launching since I was in grad school. So I came to grad school already excited about market design from the academic perspective. I really like loved the idea of using economics as a lens for understanding how to actually improve market function in the world. You know, I did my PhD in this program at HBS, and they make you take some MBA courses, even as a doctoral student. And so I took all these entrepreneurship classes and was just amazed by how many people in the world, you know, sort of how many entrepreneurs out there were doing market design in practice. And like the academic field of market design has historically been, you know, mostly focused on questions of, you know, public policy market design. So like, you know, the, the US spectrum auctions or systems like we use to match doctors to their residencies, but like by mass, it was all entrepreneurs. And so a big part of the project, like, you know, Tom and I, I took Tom's launching tech ventures class, you know, in the first year he taught it. And, you know, we just started chatting about this. And for years we were thinking like, so how would we take market design and teach it to MBAs? Yeah. And so many startups actually have marketplace dynamics embedded in totally. them, even if they don't always think of them as marketplaces. Exactly. Yeah. And so Tom had been teaching, what was the name of that course? So Tom launches a new course like every two years or whatever. That one was launching tech ventures. So it was about how do you start a technology business? Got it. So you guys started talking about while you were in grad school and then sort of matriculated. Now you're an associate professor at HPS. And so you said, here's the raw outline of it. And how did it start? You have what, 14 classes, 14 cases in a semester? Is that how it works? 24, but close enough. It was really funny, actually. Like Forming a class is a lot like forming a startup, right? You sort of have like this inkling of an idea and you're looking for product market fit. And as you do so, you're looking for all of the sort of different supporting infrastructure that's going to make it work. You know, the first challenge is we're trying to understand what the real sort of practical problems that marketplace founders face are, and then trying to sort of organize them into frameworks. And we came up with a course arc that loosely, you know, goes as follows. You know, we start with sort of almost classical economics, like what are markets for? Like, why do they create value for people, for society? And then in what ways can markets break? Like, you know, how can there, you know, if people really want to transact, how is it possible that they might not, or that they might participate in the wrong transactions or might be unhappy after they've done so? That's markets to market failures, like the way that markets can fail to achieve sort of their maximum social potential. Mm -hmm. And then we ask, okay, so if there's a market failure, how can you design a marketplace that addresses it, right? So what are the ways in which marketplace businesses can mitigate different sources of market failure. And then from there, you know, sort of transitions to thinking about, you know, there's like a, you know, discussion of mechanisms, like how you actually, you know, do things like decide who should you know, match with whom. And then how do you, you know, then operations and execution, right? How do you launch scale and manage on an ongoing basis, your marketplace? And so it sort of takes you from the like foundational questions, like what are the things that drive the need and where, where do the opportunities in marketplace business come from? 
how do you design the business to take advantage of those opportunities? And then very tactically, how do you actually run it? Got it. Yeah. I mean, and in that arc of those three things, I mean, when we say marketplaces, in fact, if you want to stretch it, I mean, all of society is sort of a marketplace, a marketplace of ideas, or you could you could look at the whole venture capital industry and all the startups as a marketplace, if you will, even though it's not centralized on one platform like an eBay or a Craigslist today, but it might be in the future. But right now it's not transparent and easily visible as one market, but it really is. And so when you're talking about market dynamics and designing marketplaces, you're really talking about how do you design society in a way? Look, I totally agree. I was once asked, you know, what's the foundational research question of market design as you would describe it to a six-year-old? You know, I thought for a while and I said, I think it's how should the world work? Yeah. How do we signal to each other? How do we communicate? How do we transact? How do we progress? How do we get what we need? How do we make trade-offs? Exactly. All those things are then embedded in these marketplace, and each node in a marketplace has to sort of come up with their own decisions. But those decisions are based on whatever information is available to them, and the marketplaces provide those informations and those opportunities or not. And that gets to your second thing, which is, well, where's the failure? And this is where you and I debate a lot because I don't particularly like the word failure because you know this goes back to my annoyance with a lot of VCs who say, well, your deck has to say what the problem is and what your solution is. And I say, well, that's not always true. Like some businesses can be described that way as a failure or as a problem, but many others are just an opportunity. You know, no one said there was a problem that Twitter was fixing or the problem that Facebook was fixing. It just was, here's, wouldn't it be awesome if? And so I kind of look at marketplaces as not necessarily failures, but as no one's thought of it yet. Or here's something that you didn't even know you could transact. So there's no failure because you didn't wake up in the morning thinking you wanted to transact and then there was a failure. It just hadn't occurred to you that you could get somebody who lives down the street from you to give you a ride to work on an Uber or a Lyft, right? It just hadn't occurred to you. We can debate that later. But so then you come into the second phase about how are things not working as we want them to. And then you get to the point of, well, once you've got something going, how do you fly the plane? That's kind of the word that I use about marketplaces is, you know, flying these things is is really difficult because I've built gaming companies, I've built, you know, social networks, I've built, you know, SaaS software. But man, when we built those marketplaces, the amount of data you had to calculate, the amount of changes you had to make was incredibly uh, voluminous on the order of running a, you know, a game as a service, like a Dragons of Atlantis, where you have 45 million people using it. And you've got to decide, do you give people more shields or more spears, or you have to change those numbers on a daily basis. The same thing with marketplaces, very difficult to fly. And so that's the third part of the course, which is what are the tactics you use to actually fly those things? Is that generally how we look at it? Exactly. To that last point for a second, it's sort of very natural with marketplaces that they're very hard to fly, because at least in my view, even relative to other forms of entrepreneurship, you're envisioning like a fundamentally different change in the way people behave. Like all entrepreneurship changes the world, right? That's, you know, sort of a baseline requirement to be a successful entrepreneur. But marketplace entrepreneurship isn't just like exposing people to a new product, giving them a new thing that they, that they sort of have an intuition for and want to use. They're already doing something. They're sort of a current behavior. Or, or failing to do something, right? They might just like be choosing not to buy a car or... So if you're selling all bird shoes, it's got new materials, it's got a new line to it. And so people are like, oh, I'll just replace the old shoes with the new shoes, but I don't change my behavior or change my self-concept. Exactly. Whereas a marketplace, you actually have to be envisioning a completely different equilibrium, like a different sort of behavioral environment. With new information inputs, new decision-making processes. Exactly. New ways of making money. Or new ways of helping people achieve their needs and wants. New ways of reassuring your employees that the business is going to be okay, even though you're now working in this new marketplace. I mean, all these things are very human. 
And those sorts of changes are filled with fear for many people. And so having new marketplace dynamics brings all that up and creates all that resistance when something changes. That's exactly right. And the advantages have to be great enough to overcome that resistance, right? Like I can swap in a new type of shoe because it's clear to me that that shoe is better. But if I'm going to, you know, sell my car through a new platform, I have to believe that buyers will be convinced to join this platform, right? So I have to sort of foresee this different behavior and imagine that the marketplace is creating enough value for those buyers to bring them on. And they're meanwhile wondering the same thing. This is sort of like the chicken and egg problem, but rephrased as a question of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And so for teaching this course, you go out and you talk to entrepreneurs and you will actually write cases on totally their particular business. How many cases would you write a year? Varies a lot. In the first year, I think Tom and I, between the two of us, we wrote something like 10 or 12. In a given year, I write, you know, three or four and then, you know, sort of a couple of similar sorts of things. Like uh, I recently wrote a note that sort of lays out my framework for how you think about mapping your marketplace solution to the uh, you know specific market challenge or opportunity you're trying to address. But it's a lot of fun and it keeps you on your toes, right? You know, sort of like dive into a company and just start talking to them about how their marketplace works and how they see it and what sort of, you know, what the market dynamics are and how they see their business operations in response to those dynamics. And first of all, like, you know, I mentioned you're sort of pulling frameworks. Frameworks pop out of that, right? So one thing that we noticed over and over and over again was that marketplaces that provide as one of their sort of principal benefits a quality guarantee often can provide that, you know, much more cheaply than you would think because somehow the presence of the guarantee changes user behavior in a way that means that the guarantee doesn't have to like, you know, be used very often, Hmm. right? Somehow like the availability of insurance is causing people to not need it. And we saw this in the very first case I wrote for the course, which was on GoFundMe. They're a crowdfunding platform for causes. I know you know it, but you know, just in case any of the listeners don't. So they're sort of like Kickstarter, but for, you know, raising money for a cause. And unlike Kickstarter, you don't get anything back right? You might get like a nice thank you note or an update on what's going on with the cause or something of the sort, but there's not a product or something you're expecting to receive, which creates all sorts of strange potential, right? You know, you, you could naturally worry that people are going to abscond with the money or misuse it. But GoFundMe implements a strong guarantee. They say like, no, if we ever discover or anybody discovers that the money and some campaign was misused or not used as stated in the campaign sort of offering and guidance, then we're just going to refund all of the donors up to some very high threshold, no questions asked, even if the money's already left the door. Right. If someone's got a campaign for a girl who needs treatment for cancer and she doesn't have the money and you give money and then it turns out that they went to Vegas and went on a bender, then GoFundMe would give you the money back. Exactly. Even if it's already been spent. I asked my students, right? So you pose the question. This came out of the conversation with GoFundMe. Like I didn't know even to how to ask this question beforehand. I asked my students, so how much do you think it costs to maintain that guarantee? you know, eventually what they realize is that, you know, it sounds like very expensive, right? Like it sounds like GoFundMe has got to super carefully vet every individual campaign and they, you know, run tons of them. You start adding it up and you realize like some, first of all, lots of campaigns don't get very big. And so for them, like you just sort of have like a diversified insurance portfolio. And besides in the smaller campaigns, most of the donors are friends and family or friends of friends and family. So there's a lot of social proof. Moreover, and this is like the, the big behavioral change, you know, it turns out that if there are lots of ways you can raise money on the internet, you know, there's an Indiegogo version, you know, for causes as well. And the fact that GoFundMe has this guarantee means they have a really strong incentive to police malfeasance, right? It's 
really important for them to vet campaigns. And so if you were planning to try and defraud your campaign donors, that's not necessarily the place you want to be, right? Your optimal strategy is to pick a platform that doesn't have the guarantee. And so as a result, GoFundMe, like, you know, sort of has this behavioral deterrence, right? That the fraudulent campaigns on average actually would prefer to be elsewhere. So you don't have to vet as many, first, because of social proof, second, because a lot are staying away. And then the third, so that's the guarantee, the insurance value, like somehow turns out that you don't actually have to use the insurance that much, right? Just having the guarantee reduces your need is that second point. And then there's actually a third one, which is even wackier, which is complementarity. GoFundMe actually to vet the campaigns doesn't send a group of lawyers, right? What they do is they send a media team or what are the campaigns you actually need to vet? They're the ones that are getting really, really big and super popular. They go viral. You know, GoFundMe says, hey, here's our media team. Uh-huh. You know, we've got a bunch of experts in promoting campaigns. We notice your campaign is going viral. We want to double that. Uh-huh. And, you know, they ask, you know, by the way, can we, you know, speak to you know the sick individual, like, you know, take some really good photos. And so they have this sort of like opportunity to vet and observe for the campaigns that are the biggest insurance risk along the way, which again helps deter, you know, the potential malfeasance. So recently you co-authored an HPR article, Harvard Business Review article called What Makes an Online Marketplace Disruptive? And you asked this great question, what are industry changing marketplaces doing that others aren't? And can those practices be replicated? So what were you saying in this article? Because some marketplaces are disruptive and some are not. Talk us through that. Cool. So first, let me quickly acknowledge my co-author, Cliff Maxwell, who is this absolutely brilliant student, you know, this year's MBA class and was previously chief of staff to Clay Christensen. So he really came into this with a, you know, the lens of having worked on disruptive innovation, like, you know, directly with the, uh, the, the literal originator of the term. And what we look at in this article is, is sort of an attempt to understand when marketplaces have the potential to you know, create value and and transactions among other non-consumers and non-producers, right? Like many marketplaces sort of just like superimpose some form of infrastructure on an existing market and sort of help the people who are doing transactions already, you know, do them more efficiently or better or with like, you know, more assurance that they're going to go well. Reduce friction or increase transparency or increase insurance or that sort of thing. Digitize it, make it doable from your smartphone. But it's the same transactions that have already been being done. You're digitizing the existing transactions. That's one way of going. Totally. And you can create a lot of value there, right? Like there are a lot of great businesses built on that. But what they don't unlock is mostly they don't bring in sort of new consumers who would never have been able to participate in the transactions before, or new producers, same thing, who like for whatever reason couldn't have been sort of in the market. Whereas disruptive marketplaces achieve this. And this really goes back to Clay Christensen's classic theory of disruptive innovation, right? What is disruption? Uh, It's building a new solution for non-consumers that is sort of good enough for them. People aren't buying a product for whatever reason. They weren't buying it because they didn't want it or it wasn't the thing for them at that price. You're saying non-consumers, but you don't mean consumers. You mean participants, non-participants. Non-participants. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Clayton Christensen's term was non-utilizers. Non-utilizers. Yes, that one. It's about enabling participation among non-participants. And you know, to do that, Cliff and I argue, a marketplace really has to somehow create a new type of transaction. And you know, in some sense, that's all, it's almost tautological, right? you know, why do you have to create a new type of transaction? Well, because these people weren't participating in the old transactions. So for whatever reason, those transactions must not have been right for them. So at that level, it's a tautology. But if you think about it as a way of understanding what your marketplace could do, there's actually a lot of structure to it, right? You sort of ask like, what types of new transactions are there? And 
so so we have we have sort of four categories. Um, maybe the easiest one to think about is what we call a, like a smaller supply unit or, or smaller unit transaction. So this think like Airbnb, right? What was the early Airbnb product, the thing that appealed to the people who were previously not participating in the existing market for travel housing, you know, which was hotels? You know, that was like, I have a room, you can stay in my room instead of like renting an entire room all to yourself in a hotel, you know, with all the services. Like I'm a random person in the city. I've got an extra room in my apartment. You know, there's going to be minimal services. I'm going to give you a towel, but I'm not going to give you tours. There won't be a concierge, you know, there won't be housekeeping or whatever. But also, you know, the space is shared. All of these things that, you know, weren't what a hotel, you know, a hotel user, you know, someone who participated in transactions with hotels was looking for. But what a lot of people who, for whatever reason, couldn't afford to stay in hotels or like didn't like the style of them, whatever the case, this was exactly what they wanted. And it's a unit that is smaller than what a hotel could provide, right? It's sort of carving things that were previously non-performing assets, extra rooms in people's apartments and houses, and turning them into rental assets to participate in the same type of transaction that people had been doing, but in a completely new way, right? Like people were looking for travel housing, but a lot of people couldn't get it because the existing option was sort of like too big a unit for them to buy. Hmm, interesting. But that was such a small market, Scott. That wasn't really yeah, okay, a market. okay place because that product wasn't really consumed. What Airbnb found was a new supply, not a new demand. It's a very similar demand. You're paying 60 to 80%, in some cases, 140% of what you pay for a hotel room because you want the experience. But what we found was new supply. Wasn't that the breakthrough? So to be fair, you know, another one of our four categories is, uh, you know, sort of new supply opportunities. So it's possible that, you know, and, and these things are not exclusive. So it's possible that like the smaller unit like thing wasn't as the, in your view, the first order component of this like new supply opportunity. I still think there are many ways in which this is a different supply unit from what had previously existed. Well, it's certainly a different supply unit. I just don't know that we should set the history of Airbnb taking off as an extra room because it, it very clearly did not take off as an extra room with an airbed on in the extra room. It took off as a rent the whole unit. You have the key. You're the only one in there. But again, it's a lot easier than running a hotel. And it's like a different... Totally. Uh, unit context and footnote also in sort of the theory of disruptive innovation, like what is disruption? Usually you're targeting, you know, non-participants on some dimension, the existing market wasn't serving, right? And so when you speak about like, you know, the new experience of living like in the community or like sort of in the city in whatever way through an Airbnb, that's very much also in line with the disruptive idea. And so Airbnb did multiple types of disruption. They sort of like started by creating something that an absolutely basic non-consumer could use then very quickly moved up market to this like much bigger disruptive opportunity, which was bringing on this supply that's easier to provide and, and smaller than a hotel and like still less overall infrastructure. There's still no concierge typically, although I've stayed at some pretty nice Airbnbs on occasion. And then more importantly, and, and this is what you're highlighting, I think, they differentiated the experience in a way that in and of itself was appealing. And that suddenly allows them to start sucking in, right? So in, in disruptive innovation, like how is the, the disruption actually happens? It's when the product becomes so good that the rest of the market wants it too, right? Something that starts out being, you know, a play for the current non-participants that's not good enough for the existing participants suddenly gets good enough that the existing participants want it also. And that's the moment I think of that you're describing where it takes off, where like now this is a substitute for a hotel. Yeah. I mean, with Airbnb, the non-participants were all of us who have an apartment and we're not staying in it while we're in the Bahamas. <laughs> exactly. Non-producers. <laughs> Non-producers. We're not participants. We didn't even know that you could take the back house in your yard and rent it out during the Super Bowl in the San Francisco Bay Area. That wasn't a thing until Airbnb because you hadn't gotten on VRBO yet. 
Right, exactly. And VRBO didn't provide the infrastructure that was needed for that to happen. Got it. So what other examples do we have that were disruptive? You've got new supply, you've got smaller units of supply, so breaking things up into smaller pieces. Then there's bundles. So strategies where you're taking a bunch of units, you know, from different suppliers or units from different, you know, units of demand together and like rolling them into a bundle that is worth enough to sell separately. So here, think about something like ClassPass, right? You have all these gyms with extra seats and courses, but their business model is sort of built around selling bigger subscriptions and member, you know, memberships. So it's not worth it to them to sell the individual units because they risk cannibalizing their own uh, you know, sort of total demand, you know, their main business of memberships. ClassPass sort of tries to take all those units and like roll them into a bundle across the businesses and sell that separately in a way that is sort of non-cannibalizing, right? It's targeting customers who don't actually have demand for the main gym product. Now, non-cannibalizing, it turns out it does in fact cannibalize. And this is again, you know, sort of as disruptive innovations move up market, they often do that, right? They often sort of start displacing the original, you know, sort of environment. But that was at least the idea. Like a little like Hotwire. Yeah. Which was from 15 years ago where they would take the extra seats on airplanes and say, you can buy it on our website, but you don't know which airline it's on, which allowed those airlines to sell the extra seats without cannibalizing their main business on Expedia or through their own websites. Right. You have to sort of provide you know, a bundled unit in some form that's not good enough to directly cannibalize the uh, the main market at least at the outset but that is valuable enough money for the uh, you know for the operators that they're actually willing to join the platform mm-hmm. right to increase their utilization exactly of their fixed assets like an airplane or a class in a gym and then what's the fourth category fourth category is trust wrappers so this is a little bit different from the others right although it, it plays in with new supply or demand a lot the idea here is when there's sort of a pure failure of trust, you know, for whatever reason, like you don't know who your counterparty is, or, you know, you're worried about privacy of the transaction or people learning information about you through the transaction or something. Trust wrappers sort of create like a certification or a, you know, a safe harbor that makes it possible to transact with people sort of in a way that has sort of new forms of trust. Blockchains do this a lot, right? By enabling you to transact securely with a party you don't necessarily know or to see how all of your information was used. Like, you know, there are all these um, experiments with data marketplaces where, you know, every access shows up and is sort of recorded. And so you can, you know, know who's using your data and how. And as a result, again, just like in the GoFundMe case we talked about, you know, that's a deterrent to malfeasance because the malfeasance is sort of like observed and directly. We also see this, I did a case on this group in Israel. It's the innovation arm of one of uh, Israel's biggest healthcare institutions, Maccabi Healthcare. The innovation arm is called Maccabi Tech, and they've built a virtual research room. So they have this incredibly rich health data. Um, and we're trying to figure out how can you open this up to researchers to enable people to, you know, both do scientific research on it, you know, learn about you know, better information about causes of disease and opportunities for treatment, but also to entrepreneurs. How can you make it possible for different people who might have ideas for healthcare startups to work on their data set to, you know, develop the technology and sort of identify the opportunities. And so they built sort of like a virtual research room with privacy technology and sort of synthetic data for experimentation, all of this infrastructure to support people coming in and using the data in a way that wouldn't leak sensitive information and wouldn't, you know, somehow harm the patients whose data was being used and so forth. And that's enabled tremendous value on on all of those dimensions, right? There've been a ton of research papers written on this data set and now several successful startups. And what they needed to do was somehow 
create a way of accessing the data in a way that all the parties could trust was going to be safe, right? Then it's all sides. It's the researcher's information isn't somehow going to be, you know, ideas somehow aren't going to be stolen. But even more importantly, it's the patient data is not going to be misused or somehow like, you know, leak or result in harm. And so I think you use OutSchool as an example as well. And then Angie's list is not actually disruptive. Let's compare those two. Yeah. Okay. So unfortunately, I tend to think of Angie's list as not disruptive. And again, it doesn't mean it's not super valuable, right? But what are they doing there? They're like, you know, enabling a much more efficient market for home services. And and that's really good because it's really hard to navigate home services contracting, right? Like, you know, it's super hard to find somebody to repair some part of your house, you know, like who is going to do a good job and like be trustworthy and so forth. You know, creating a system for managing that market is really, really valuable because a lot of people waste a lot of time on it, right? On both sides, right? If you're a provider, you spend a lot of time trying to find customers and like, you know, sort of figure out how to credential yourself. And, and if you're a customer, you spend a lot of time trying to find a provider who's, you know, got the right skills and the right, you know, sort of, you know, the, the right abilities and you can trust to do the job well and so forth. So there's a lot of friction, but they're not enabling new participation, right? They're not somehow bringing in new people who could do home services contracting by and large, right? Like, you know, is there a little bit of that? Sure, potentially, right? If the main reason you stayed out of this space was because it was, you know, you were afraid of the marketing challenges and, and building reputation, then a bit. But mostly it's sort of enabling this very, very frictional, like, you know, highly inefficient market to move much more effectively. I think their market cap's around 7 billion. So it's clearly valuable to do that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. And like even extremely successful marketplaces, you know, don't have to be disruptive. Right. So this is an example of OutSchool being the disruptive one. They've got new supply, new demand, new transactions that just weren't taking place before. And people are excited and spreading the word. And and suddenly you have this pretty, like, like a fiver maybe, where they started out saying everything for $5. And everyone said, well, that's a stupid idea. That's never going to get big. You know, how many things can you buy for $5? But at least it gave people a focus. It was disruptive. People didn't know they needed to buy things for $5, like getting your name written on a grain of rice for $5. And then as they got bigger, they just said everything $5 and up. They just expanded their market. And now they've also got a $7 billion market cap. Have you at this point got this framework for best practices for what industry changing marketplaces are doing and that others aren't? And can entrepreneurs, can the startup founders that are listening to us use this framework for idea generation? Because look, one of the things we say at NFX is the biggest waste in our ecosystem is great people working on bad ideas. And, you know, having been an investor now and been an entrepreneur now for 20 plus years, I've seen thousands and tens of thousands of ideas. I can categorize your business into this is going to waste your life's energies. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Or the smaller group is this is definitely a fertile soil. And if you go hard at it, you will have success. And then there's a middle group, which is, I don't know. And I would have put Airbnb in that. Like, I don't know. Will people sleep on an airbed in someone's room? Uh, maybe. And if, and if they do, then it could be an interesting business, but I can't tell you that it's a fertile soil. Like I would have gotten that one kind of wrongish. But if we can move people from bad ideas to maybe they're good ideas to they're definitely good ideas, that would be very helpful because then people would waste fewer years working on ideas that are going to go nowhere. So how does this help founders with idea generation or company pivoting? Cool. All right. So first, just one footnote on that point about formulating ideas. I should say that this is particularly important in the marketplace environment because as I was saying earlier, right, you're envisioning like a fundamentally different change in behavior. That often means that like the normal like 
testing things we do to find product market fit, harder to make work, especially really early on. You sort of need a theory of change. You have to sort of have a model in your head of how what you do is going to change the way the market works. Yeah. And we we often will see that founders will be working on a marketplace for four years before stuff starts to happen, before those changes exactly. start to make place. And you really start to see liftoff in these marketplaces in year seven and eight. Exactly. And so- you know, the types of timescales you're thinking about mean that you really have to road test the idea in theory before putting it into practice, or you're at, or rather as you're putting it into practice, I suppose. But yeah, so how does the framework help you spot sort of marketplace opportunities? First of all, it draws attention to this idea of non-participants, right? And it pushes you to get a sense in your head of whether you're building a marketplace for existing participants or non-participants, because these are really different, right? Like disruptive innovations are about enabling non-participation to turn into participation. Whereas lots of other businesses are about reducing friction and, you know, sort of enabling the existing transactions to work much better. And these imply like really different launch strategies. And you sometimes see founders get it backwards or averted, right? So I, like I think about food delivery marketplaces, like food delivery, to my mind, is really like in the Angie's List category. It's not in principle, a disruptive innovation because food is a luxury service. You know, so restaurant food is a luxury. Having restaurant food delivered to you sort of at a specific moment in time is a luxury on top of a luxury, right? And, and sorry, at least on the consumer side, it's like it's an incredibly sort of like luxury format business, at least in the abstract. There is a little bit of disruptive potential on the supply side I'll talk about in a moment. But if you were operating that business, right, if you know it's a luxury, like what's your goal? Your goal is to take the consumers who are already doing the most of it and help them do it better and more cheaply, you know, for you, right? You're, you're trying to create efficiencies in the market. So it's less expensive to provide delivery services and give those like, you know, power consumers the opportunity to consume like more, make it easier, make it sort of better for them so that they engage in this luxury more and more often. But in practice, the way all these delivery service marketplaces launched, I shouldn't say all, many of them launched was to try super hard to convince everybody to buy delivery food, right? They like threw voucher after voucher, discount after discount, trying to get people hooked on the idea idea of buying this luxury product who were not previously consuming. And like, maybe they were willing to consume at the price point of the discount, but you know, once the price goes back up, you know, you can only afford to buy delivery food as much as you can afford to buy it. And like, you know, you, whatever, however bad your sushi habit is, right. It, you know, the costs add up and you notice. And so they had this view going in, I think that they were trying to, that their real goal was to get the people who were not big delivery customers to become big delivery customers. And so this like led to this launch strategy where they like burned tons of capital on trying to recruit those customers, even though they turned out to not be recurrent. Meanwhile, on the other side, you know, that capital's got to come from somewhere. Like, where are you making the money? They tried to make the money off of the supply side and the restaurants, they're very high fees. But if you think about it, the restaurants were the potential non-producers here right? Like lots of restaurants had no delivery at all because it was too expensive for them to run their own delivery infrastructure. If you give them a, you know, a net of delivery, you know, of existing drivers, technology infrastructure they can use and invest in making that a core part of their business, then suddenly you've brought all of the supply online that didn't exist before. And your value to those consumers, the customers is even higher. And so the disruptive potential on food delivery was really, in my view, on the supply side. And they went in the other direction. They sort of thought they were trying to disrupt on the demand side. And as a result, like stymied their ability to, you know, sort of really take advantage of the disruptive potential on supply. You really should be attentive to who are the non-consumers and non-producers. Again, consumer meaning everyone. Who are your non-participants really? You're saying go after the non-participants because they're going to go from making no revenue to making some revenue and that's going to draw them in. They're going to have lower friction. They're going to learn to do their business on your platform. 
and be much more attached to it and be more loyal to it. And you're going to get a lot more rapid change from them and rapid growth. Is that sort of one of the things you're suggesting? Exactly. Or at least that's one strategy. And know that if that's your strategy, that you, that's what you should be doing. If your strategy is just, I'm going to be reducing friction, I'm going to make this market run better, adopt that as a strategy, You know, but focus then on the customers for whom those improvements are most valuable, who are probably the people who are doing the, the transactions the most right now. Right? These are like fundamentally opposite. Right? Like If your goal is just to reduce friction, you want to focus on the power users, the higher frequency. If your goal is really about enabling non-participants to participate, then you're focusing on the non-users. And so there's this like big gap and like lots of founders sort of try and do the middle at the start. In either case, you hope to move into that middle, but you're coming from different sides. Yeah. We always say, try to find the white hot center. Totally. The white hot center. So as we look at ways of helping founders think about idea generation or helping them move to the white hot centers or the fast moving water so that they can grow more quickly. One thing is looking at non-participants. Another thing is looking at new things that have never been in a marketplace before, like NFTs or throwing parties in Second Life. So that's two frameworks. What other frameworks could we give them? Uh, so in a second, we should talk about you know comparative advantage and your opportunities as the marketplace operator, because those actually also generate their own set of ideas. But one more thing in this, like, how do you identify your sort of pure opportunities? You know, my PhD advisor, Al Roth, used to say, a market where you see rules that should never have to be rules has some problems in it. And I'm going to generalize that to, you know, a market where people are trying to transact, like going far out of their way to participate in a transaction that's really, really difficult to do indicates, you know, real potential value. Crawling on your hands and knees over broken glass. If you see people doing that, exactly. There's something there. Because again, right, you know, we talk about like lowering the costs of participating in a given type of transaction, right? If there's so much friction that it's unimaginable that anyone would do it in the first place and they're doing it anyway, that suggests there's a real value reason to help them do it more easily. So then on the comparative advantage side, right? So I think of marketplace design as having three principal dimensions. There's curation, matching and support. And curation is you know, structuring the transactions that can happen in your market. Matching is, you know, helping determine which ones actually do happen. And support is helping them to happen, right? You know, so a curation intervention might be, you know, vetting all the suppliers on your platform. And a result of that is that if someone knows if they show up on the demand side, all the suppliers have been vetted because you have done that. And so they can expect high quality. Curation generally like raises the average transaction quality and also the worst case scenario in some sense, you know, makes the, the, you know, absolute transaction quality higher. Matching is like helping people decide who to transact with or under which terms they should transact. So that could be like, you know, there are tons of suppliers, we're going to recommend five. It doesn't have to be saying you're going to transact with this one person, but it's like cutting down the search costs and all the complexity of like figuring out who a potential partner could be. And then supporting services, these are things like, you know, payment processing, standard contracts, communications tools, and also things like value-added services, right? Like, you know, if you're going to have sort of a, an insurance option or a guarantee, like we were talking with, about with GoFundMe, you know, support makes the transactions sort of happen more effectively. You as the marketplace organizer could have particular skill and advantage in any one of these dimensions. And that might also guide like how you try and fix a market failure. You know, so there are a couple of different ways, for example, you could try and improve average transaction quality, right? If you're really, really good at vetting suppliers, right? You just happen to know the entire market. You know what makes a good supplier and you have a really efficient way of, of figuring out who's high quality. Then maybe you go for curation. You try and build a super narrow, heavily curated platform with only the best supply. And then your advantage to demand is that like they know every transaction is super high quality. 
if that's really hard, then like maybe you instead go for a support strategy, like where you get really good at providing trust guarantees and sort of like down, you know, sort of ensuring against downside risk, or you take on a lot of the transaction yourself, right? Like you sort of, you know, instead of having the supplier transact directly, maybe you like sort of fully partition the market, you like buy from the supplier, like improve anything, you know, any goods that are of lower quality and then sell them directly to the customer. But whatever the case, you might have different sort of ability and comparative advantage in these different dimensions of the transactions. And that also guides what you actually work on. Hmm, interesting. You know, I agree with you that you need to look at what you're good at already. But I got to say, in coaching teams, often they keep doing the thing they're good at, even though the market doesn't really value that piece of it. For instance, they get really good at getting supply and they keep reporting to me on how great they're getting supply. But in fact, it doesn't matter if they don't have any demand. And demand is the harder side. We call it demand side marketplace. If you get the demand, the supply will show up and they say, look, we've got all this supply and look at how great our supply is growing. And then, and I like, I don't care. And they're like, but we're doing so great. It's our comparative advantage. I'm like, the market doesn't value that comparative advantage. So I'm sorry that you developed something that the market doesn't value and won't pay for, but you've got to change that. And it's a very hard emotional shift for them to make. So I would caution against saying, just focus on what you're good at, because it's often the case that what you need to do in these marketplaces is figure out where's the greatest point of leverage. Is it the vendor financing? Is it the insurance? And if it is, then that's where you need to be. And if you're going to make a success in this sector that you've chosen. Yeah, you're totally right. I should have done that mapping. You know, again, market failure. I talk about sources of market failure. Like what is it in the market that's stopping the transactions from happening? Is it that people don't trust each other? Is it that they don't have a way to communicate? Is it that the search costs to find a good transaction partner are too high? The specific design intervention you choose has to address whatever is actually driving the lack of value or the loss of value. And so you could be like the world's best, exactly as you say, you could be like the world's best at like recruiting suppliers because you built a platform that's super easy for them to use. It's like a really nice SaaS product. And so every single one of them wants to sign on. But if the problem is demand side search costs are too high or something, um, or like, you know, demand side trust is low, whatever it is, it's keeping the demand side away bringing in the suppliers doesn't get you there. And so it's definitely true, right? Like you want to be in this, can we repurpose the white hot center term? We want to be in the like the white hot optimum, right? What is it something that is addressing a principal source of value loss in the market that you are yourself really good at or have some special advantage in fixing? Mm -hmm. Got it. So you keep talking about market loss. If a market for NFTs doesn't exist and it's just growing, Using your word about market failure or market loss, where is there a market failure or loss in the NFT market today? Because I would argue there isn't yet because we're just inventing it. Like there's no way of understanding loss if you don't have a concept of what already is. How does it help you? Because you're really into this term market failure. Is that because it's really dramatic and it gets everyone's attention? Or is it useful? Is that language helpful for founders in order to think things through? Because I'd love to use market failure in the places where it makes sense to help people see stuff they hadn't seen, but I'm not sure that it's helping me right now. And I want to understand that better. You know, first of all, where does the term come from? So it really comes from, again, like classical economics. We have this idea that markets somehow, you know, push towards better outcomes, where better is actually like interpreted very broadly. Like the most sort of classical economic way of thinking about it is we just make outcomes more efficient. You find people who want to, you know, have things that they want to trade and you have people find people who want them and you enable trade, right? Markets sort of move toward Pareto optimality. Exactly. They're moving towards Pareto optimality. Pareto optimality meaning there's no trade left that would make everybody better off. Exactly. They're pushing in a direction that, you know, sort of maximizes 
you know, sort of total trade value, you know, relative to what the market will possibly bear. And we have a more nuanced view of this. You know, it's not just, you know, transactions sort of like maximizing the total productive power of the market, but it's, you know, sort of the value of the market, right? Like we care about fairness, we care about equity of outcomes, like all of these things together. I sort of, I like to use the words social potential, right? Like how much value for society in aggregate could a market create? And so when I say market failure, all I mean is that the market and you know whatever its boundaries or sort of which are sort of abstract boundaries are is not achieving the maximum social potential. And the cool thing about you know market failures like suck, right? That's like a circumstance where we're not achieving maximum social potential, right? We'd always rather achieve maximum social potential because that's like good for society. But the cool thing about it from the perspective of entrepreneurship is anytime a market is not achieving its maximum social potential, if you manage to achieve more of that potential, or if you somehow help it like do more, you know, sort of do more, it doesn't even have to get to its maximum. You're creating value literally by definition, right? Like, you know, when I try and sort of understand a marketplace opportunity, I look for places where markets aren't achieving their maximum possible value. And like to that, to me- But that's every marketplace, Scott. Sure, but some are doing it more than others. And sometimes the sources are more addressable than others. And so like you ask about the NFT market, and of course, yes, right? Like, you know, I spent two years teaching at Chicago, but I still completely believe that like essentially every market does not achieve its maximum social value. Sorry, that was that had a lot of negatives in it. I still believe that essentially all markets have some degree of market failure, but some are much more efficient than others. You ask about the NFT context, right? Like to me, you're right. I think we haven't yet seen sort of the structure of failures that might arise in the NFT market itself. But we are seeing NFTs addressing market failures in other existing markets, right? Like NFTs to me, like right now, they're sort of a technology that it's unusual, right? It's a technology that may also become like a market object in and of itself. But as I said earlier, like they're creating property rights that address what was a market failure, say, in the art market or in a sort of other creator markets where people were creating digital content and there was no way for them to sort of successfully like trade that value to the people who valued it the most or you know and so in that sense that was the market failure it was like you have people who have content you have people with like really high demand for content and who want to support these creators but there was no framework there was no technology for doing that you've also been thinking a little about composite marketplaces which are multiple marketplaces glued together with network effects that flow from one to another how are you thinking about this oh so these are super cool so i've been thinking about these ever since i came across a business called Roxul which uh, R-A-K-S-U-L, but it's a Japanese business. So that's the English transliteration of the name. It's three marketplaces together. So they started as a printing services marketplace. And Japan has this massive small business culture in many, many industries. And printing's one of them. Aggregated up, you know, a bunch of the best printers and provided an electronic commerce front end to, you know, do your printing transactions. And so, you know, what was going on before, right? Like you'd call your local printer, they'd say, great, they'd take the job. Then they'd realize they didn't have quite the right size printing machine. So they'd call one of their friends who's like, you know, half the city over. And like, and as a result, like your job ends up being done very far from you with a lot of like sort of individual sort of subcontracting along the way. And that might also take a long time, super inefficient. Yasukane Matsumoto, incredible founder, incidentally, who's like basically my age, was like the coolest thing ever talking with him about this. Like he sees this market and says, now, wait a minute, like we can find the best printers and actually invest in them, make them even more efficient, right? You know, lease them higher quality printing equipment, like you know, sort of lend them some, t- some engineers, you know, to make their operations better. And then 
provide like sort of a single electronic commerce front end that's going to take care of all of the matching and also provide a bunch of support, like quality guarantees and so forth. So they're doing, you know, a lot of curation, direct matching. Like you just tell them, here's what I want to print. They choose a printer, call them up and send them the job. And then some other supporting things like a quality guarantee to make sure that you understand that the opportunity is high quality. They did that. It succeeds. They go off and they were raising, I think, a Series C round. They they raised a bunch of money. And then the founder announces, okay, great. Now we're going to launch a second marketplace, right? They took in all this money that sort of like you would nor- normally think like, okay, they're this is now, they're, they've succeeded. They found product market fit. They're just in scaling mode. It's like, okay, great. We're going to launch a second business, which is a ground shipping marketplace. So they operate this, they start operating the second business where it's very similar. So Japan has all of these small business shipping companies, and some of them are like really small, like one or two trucks. And they're taking up like slack capacity and gradually like sort of like expanding. They partner with one of the big shipping companies, you know, to sort of both provide like deal flow and to sort of try and flow opportunities to some of these smaller businesses. And then, you know, so we were writing a case study, like I flew out to do a case on these two businesses and I get there, you know, sort of my friend and collaborator, Nobuo Sato, who's the director of the Japan Research Center says, you're not going to believe this, just launched a third marketplace, which is a television advertising marketplace. And so television ads turns out same business structure. Again, they're like tons of small individual channels that have trouble selling ads. And, you know, so they built an electronic commerce front end for this TV ad. So they built the same business three times, right? It's an electronic commerce front end for a very fragmented supply side where they've also done some things to invest in making sure the supply side is really high quality. But the question is like, why these three businesses? And I pose this to my students. I'm like, I'm so confused, right? Like, could you imagine telling your investors who just gave you a bunch of money? Like we're about to launch like this totally unrelated seeming second marketplace and then a third one. What's the trick? The biggest cost point in printing is moving all the paper around. It's shipping. And they discovered that if they can make the shipping market more efficient, not only do they make money there, but they lower the costs on the printing side pretty dramatically. And meanwhile, like who's the customer for the TV ads? Well, first you ask who's the customer for the print goods. It's mostly a bunch of small businesses that are printing menus or advertising or marketing materials. If you can take those marketing materials and turn them into TV commercials, now you can own like 20% of your customer's marketing budget instead of 5%. If you get internet ads, maybe like 50%. And so they built an applet for taking your print materials and turning them into a 30-second TV commercial spot, basically, you know, sort of entirely automated. And they can say, look, we can just offer you this additional service. You can get on channels near where your customers are that previously couldn't sell their ads. And so it's an unreal paradox. But when they bring on like more TV supply, like more ad space supply, that raises the value for the customers of the TV market who are also the customers for the printing market, which raises the value for printers to be on the platform, which raises the value for shippers to be on the platform. So there's this network effect that flows, like, you know, bring on a supply side participant on one in one sub marketplace drives supply two marketplaces over. And what's the vision for the business, right? They're going to be like the back office for every small business. They do all of these different operations that they need in this like very high quality, like guaranteed organized way through a single central platform. Sure. Yeah, I'll tell you, my reaction would be fan freaking tastic. Sounds awesome. More network effects. And if the CEO's dynamite, then you just back the CEO and say, I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos is selling books and then suddenly he's doing AWS and suddenly he's doing Alexa. It's like, yeah, let him go. Spot on, right? Like, and indeed it turned out, it worked out really well, right? Like the market suddenly realized that Roxel wasn't a printing company. Like their valuation wasn't relative to other printers. It was a 
major tech platform. But you're exactly right. You have to see it that way. Yeah. It's not like General Electric who had experience in manufacturing and they were doing refrigerators and then they were doing jet engines and their expertise in manufacturing allowed them to scale up in both things, but there was really no synergy between them except the manufacturing expertise. That's sort of a conglomerate, if you will. These guys are actually describing a situation where it's a quasi-conglomerate, but there's also now scale effects and network effects that allow you to become one thing. We call that, of course, reinforcement. We've got an article called Reinforcement that addresses how you take one network effect and add other network effects on top of it once you get one. Well, that's a great case study for us to think about with composite marketplaces. Not only do you want to start with the white hot center in one market and then expand to own that whole printing market, but then you start to see other reinforcements and take more and more market share and then use those network effects to take more. It's great. So it's the way you build Decacorns and companies larger than that. So Scott Commoners, as always, my friend, so fun to talk to you. We will have you back sometime when we're both more rested and we'll cover some more stuff. I think all of these very tactical things are very good for founders to hear. And I know I love riffing with you on them. I always learn something every time I chat. And thank you for doing your work. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you. I always learn from you. And you know, if there weren't people like you backing and helping grow these fantastic companies, I'd have nothing to write about. Thanks. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks. And feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.